how do you build build lean evangelists versus paid profits? Right. Right. A paid profit will tell you anything you want to hear to keep making a profit. <laughs> yeah. Right. A, a lean evangelist is going to spread the truth about what's working and if it's real or not. And that's when you build your culture of lean, lean evangelists. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 298 of the podcast. It's January 30th, 2018. Joining me again today is Billy R. Taylor. This is part two of a discussion that we started in episode 293. Last week, a friend texted me and said he couldn't wait for part two of this discussion. He said he literally pulled off the road to take some notes while he was listening uh, to part one. So without further ado, here is part two. Here we discuss extreme ownership, why Billy says creating ownership is more important than forcing accountability, and other important lessons he's learned and shared along the way. Uh, Again, Billy is currently the Director of Commercial Off-Highway and Support Manufacturing North America for the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. He moved up through the leadership ranks, including time spent as a plant director at facilities in Oklahoma and North Carolina. The Oklahoma facility uh, won the prestigious Shingo Prize uh, for excellence in manufacturing. So if you want to find uh, links to uh, different books and things we talk about here, you can go to leanblog.org slash 298. Um, I really enjoyed what Billy has to say. I think he's particularly uh, quotable, and there are a number of links there if you'd like to tweet and share some of the things um, that he said. We try to make that easy for you to do. But again, you can go to leanblog.org slash 298. I heard uh, it was a a podcast um, somebody in Finland does. He was talking with um, the retired general, Stanley McChrystal from the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with his book, Team of Teams. Yes, I am. And, and uh, you know, in the podcast, um, General McChrystal was talking about the idea of sharing information within special ops and within the military. And, you know, he, he said, you know, they were trying to change the culture. Uh, you know, this idea of, of, of keeping information secret was counterproductive. They, you know, you talked about having to share information with the frontline troops and, and leaders and trusting them to make decisions based on that information. And, you know, the interviewer asked, well, you know, what, what about leaks and, and things have been made public? And General McChrystal said that, well, you know, the the leaks didn't really hurt that much. And I, you know, I think the implication was uh, them not sharing information internally would have hurt a lot more. So it's not like he was willing to accept some of that risk that might be perceived uh, from information sharing. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it's interesting to think about parallels to the organization. People might say, you know, well, I, I can't share our financial data with the employees. But, you know, I think back even, you know, a good example from GM 20 years ago, there was one department manager that sort of tried to help the frontline employees think of their department as a business. He would basically post revenue numbers based on uh, production throughput and costs of of labor and uh, cost of poor quality. And, and, and he was trying to share more information, which was, uh, that was not the norm for that GM culture. Mm-hmm. 
and, and you know, I've had that, that personal experience sharing data. I think my assistant said to me once uh, upon coming into this job, you sh- Billy, you share too much. Hmm. And I asked, I said, why do you say that? In the past, your predecessors would never talk about these things. And that was interesting. And, you, yeah. and we'll go back to those three approaches, right? Define winning. I'll give you an example. I went to Fayetteville, North Carolina, and there's a lot written about the the transformation there. Within six months, we went from 31,000 to 38,000 tires a day. Mm. And no one thought that that was possible. But more importantly, uh, we worked, uh, I think it was around 2% less hours to get that mass production. Mm. And so I remember when I went there, I went to night shift first, and I asked my my vice president, could I not sit in the chair for two weeks? I like to go assess the situation. I want to seek to understand before I seek to change. And so when I went there, he asked me, so why would you do that? I said, because I have to earn the right to change. Mm. And he said, what do you mean? I said, there's two rights. There's the cultural right and the technical right. To earn the technical right, that's just a complete set of vital resources. Uh, people, do they have enough people, uh, tools and processes? Uh, and it's a, it's a key contributor to building and sustaining a successful culture. People have to have the technical things they need to do the job. And once the leader provides that, he's earned one of the rights to change. Now, I can't just say I gave you a new piece of equipment. You should be doing better. Now comes the cultural right. And, and that's the right for everyone, all right? It, it's whether alone or in a team to express one's identity and to assess cultural references as necessary resources. And what is that? That's the ethical standards, the moral standards, the respect for the natives. And culture is a key element in the process of development and transformation. Mm-hmm. And once I earn those two rights, people start to buy in on what you're doing. So what happens... Once I realized they didn't know what winning was, and so what right did I have to basically ridicule the results hmm. when no one even knew what winning was? Right. So here's what's interesting. I, said, I asked, I said, what's the favorite sport in, the, in this community? And they said, our football team, Billy. <laughs> and I said, great. So I go to my controller. I said, I want you to order 3,000 football jerseys. He said, football jerseys? Yes, and I want the number 38 on the front. <laughs> and I want you on the back where normally a player's name, I want you to add the choice. Mm-hmm. The choice. And I said, in the front, put Fayetteville. I said, Billy, people are not going to wear these jerseys. <laughs> I don't want them to wear the jerseys. I want them to understand what 38 means. Yeah. Because they're going to tell me how we're going to get there. Bottom line, Everybody wore those jerseys. We saw them in churches. Mm. We saw them in Walmart. Mm. We saw them at football games. And more importantly, what was the first question asked? What does 38 represent? Mm -hmm. That's our ticket to meet our customer demand. Now, the process of getting there, I had the buy-in. I had the buy-in. And and it was interesting. We used that as a tool to define winning. And, and, and in six months, they were at 38000 hmm. And I remember going back to visit, uh, but three years later, after I left the facility, the whole plant lined the aisles wearing the 38 jerseys. 
<laughs> they lined the aisles and they said, Billy, what you gave us was ownership. And they said, Billy, here's the, the, the funniest part of the story was the guard came to me and said, Mr. Taylor, I want, I want to get in on the process and I want to post here at the guardhouse whether we're winning or not. Everybody walks by this guardhouse and go to work every day from waste, quality, cost, delivery, and I want to put that up there. And, Billy, uh, here's my suggestion idea because I, I would like my shirt. He says, anyone that comes to visit our plant for a tour, they have to get a tour admission card from me. Now, the only way I'm going to allow them to exit the, the building if they give me three improvement suggestions for our plant. And then I'll let them out. I said, unless they're from corporate headquarters, you let them out right away. And he starts laughing. But look at the extreme ownership, even at the guard. Everybody had bought into the process because they were engaged into it. And when you get people bought in, I mean, you, know, you, you set a goal. And a lot of times people react to a goal by telling you all the reasons why they can't do it or why the goal is impossible. How do you steer the conversation toward the positive of, of how do we accomplish a goal? Simple for, for me. Tell me what do you need to deliver it, and yeah. then let's decide whether we can give you that or not. So don't tell me uh, basically what you cannot do. Tell me what you need to deliver what the expectation is, and then we'll go from there. In most cases, you get excuses. Mm-hmm. And when and you have to step out of your comfort zone as a leader when that person says, well, I need A, B, and C, then the conversation moves. So if I help you obtain A, B, and C, we'll deliver the expectations. Well, Billy, I can do it with this. But it's that conversation where... You, you, you transfer ownership right? because people are going to put those excuses up there. and You have to change the tone of the discussion mm-hmm. around what is it you need to deliver the A versus there's no way I can deliver A. Right. And if, 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 if and what becomes evident, sometimes the people don't know what they need. So you have to create that process. And we... we 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 call we have model what's called model machines, and so we build a standard, a standard around a machine, and we call it process prove it, process trust it, process challenge it, then process replicate it, and that's the cycle where the machine keeps getting better, but you have to earn the right to keep changing, and in most cases some operator says we can't do it, our machines can't do that. But once we created the model machine, the team was assessing what they needed to be successful. Right. And again, ownership went to the floor versus to Billy Taylor. Billy Taylor moved into the meeting as an enabler, and I was working for the team. They weren't working for me. Yeah. And so that's we've had tremendous success, not only at the shop floor level, but with the uh, with my senior leadership team. Right, right. And it moves around setting clear expectations, the clarity around what winning is. What's that clarity? What is the, the clarity around that piece of it? It's it's critical. It, it, it is critical. And, and I think it, it's just been instilled in me 
beyond lean was when I, I was a pretty decent athlete when I was a young kid, and I was in the eighth grade, and I played for a football team that were in the city championship for the first time in school history. And I was a star player. And my mother came to me prior to the start of the season and set expectations. And she said, if you make anything less than a B, you can't play. Mm-hmm. And a, a week before the city championship game, grades came out, and I'd made a bad grade. At that time, they called it marks. I'd made a bad mark. Mm-hmm. And my mother called me in the house, and she said, I have this report card, and I see where you made an F. And I said, yes, ma'am. I said, she says, mm, creatively, you tried to change the F to a B with this ink pen. <laughs> <laughs> and and so she says, you're off the team. Mm. And I remember saying, Mom, we're playing for the city championship. She says, understood. That was your plan. Mm. And so the the principal shows up, the athletic director shows up, um, I mean, everyone, the coaches, and I, and I can hear her voice right now telling that coach, if you're here to speak to me about to be, you're welcome to stay. But if you want to talk about football, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Mm. And he says, you know, Billy could play in the NFL someday. She says, Mr., until that bad grade um, remains on his report card, she says, if NFL's in this house means not for long will he be playing. <laughs> yeah. And, and and I didn't play. We lost the game fifty four to nothing. Oh. It was the best thing she ever did for me. What did she do? She changed the standard. Mm-hmm. She changed the standard in a household. And I was recently looking at a baseball coach, and he he wore a baseball plate around his neck. And what was the baseball plate plate symbolizing? He said to the audience who thought he was going see now wearing a baseball plate around his neck. He says, this represents a standard. This baseball plate is 17 inches. When Babe Ruth played baseball almost 100 years ago, the plate was 17 <laughs> inches. Mm-hmm. Derek Jeter, the plate is 17 inches. Mm-hmm. Aaron Judge, the new Yankee hero, the plate is 17 inches. If you play Little League baseball, the plate is 17 inches. High school, 17 inches. College, 17 inches. Now, what changes is the distance from the plate based on age. Right. So the, the, if you have a pitcher that can't get that plate over the 17 inches, do you widen the plate? No. It's the standard. Yeah. It's the standard. If you widen the plate, you're going to get dark days ahead. And it's, it's like a lean journey. What's the standard? That's the governance piece. What's yeah. the standard? And often people want to negotiate the standard versus staying within 17 inches. Well, and it sounds like the, the right thing, the best thing for you over the long term was to hold to the standard on the grades. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, some of my principles, my core values and principles, they're around, I have a standard of how to treat people. If you get within two feet of me, I shake your hand. It's called mm-hmm. a two-foot rule. Mm-hmm. Okay? I, I, I have a, a process even meetings. Uh, who's going to be talking? Even in my leadership team, if I'm not at a meeting with my staff or my plant managers, the meeting starts without me. 
It's not my meeting. It's our meeting. And they know the golden rule. And I was recently speaking at Industry Week, and um, I had an event where I was down checking my sound system, and we were going to do a workshop with my staff to prove our processes. And immediately after that, I was going to do the opening keynote. Well, my sound didn't come up, and they couldn't get the video teed up. Mm. And, and, and so I'm, I'm sitting there. Unbeknownst to me, it's five minutes after, and our session for the workshop was supposed to start, and I was supposed to kick it out off. My leadership team looks at each other, it looks at each other, and they say, "Wait a minute, what's the rule? We better get started." Yeah. They started the presentation without me, and they got a standing ovation. <laughs> and it was the extreme ownership. It's that that, but it's a standard. Right. Right. Do you do what you say? And say what you do. Get on, on the topic of, of winning, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to go through uh, the Shingo process um, to receive uh, the silver medallion that was uh, that was back in Oklahoma? Is that right? That is correct. Um, that was outstanding. That was the game changer for me. It was a standard around functions and tiers. Right, and so I call it managing the intersections. It gave me a process to tie in systems, tools, and processes. It gave me processes to build a culture for sustainment. And going through that, at one point, it was very difficult, very challenging. We had to get outside of our comfort zone. But midway through, we realized we weren't doing it for the award. We were doing it for the process. Mm. And what people don't know, the score at that time to win the actual Shingo Prize was set a score of 775. They no longer give scores today. Um, we scored 774. Oh. <laughs> yes. So Boy. the difference from a Shingo Silver Medallion to a Shingo Prize was one point. Mm. Now, that was a blessing to us. At that point, we realized, again, it wasn't about the pride. It was about the process. Mm -hmm. right? And even in, 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 in our organizations winning, it's not about the pride. It's about the process. The pride is going to come. And going through the journey, what was the valuable part of the Shingo Prize was the process and the governance around it. There was some strict governance around what you should be doing. Now, it allowed us to operate within our own native culture, mm -hmm. however, but it gave us a process. And I, I still use that process today. And it's not, and I learned a lot around how to use 5S. I learned a lot about how to use Plan, Do, Check, Act. Um, I, ha I learned a lot about uh, the aspect of recognition as a leader and how to deploy that leadership and ownership to others on my team. And essentially, uh, I coined it as power, right? Power is, is at its maximum potential when it's given away, mm -hmm. not when it's expressed. Yeah. 
And in in your role now as uh, you know senior manufacturing executive, I imagine you're you're still teaching and using those principles, even if plants are no longer going through the formal process to try to get the prize. Is that right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Actually, when I show up for a plant visit, um, I, I I I deploy the same technique I use as a plant manager. Um, the the the, the, right, define a line, execute. But when I get to a plant, uh, I often start with a session with the leadership team in a closed room, and that normally lasts for about an hour or so. And at that point, I make a, an announcement: I no longer want to speak to you for the, the rest for the rest of this visit. I don't want to hear from you. I want to now hear from the people. Mm. Let's hit the shop floor. And it's amazing uh, to see people come to the forefront. And, and I learned that from going through the shingle process as well, through the audit process, right? I'm in the room, but I could not talk. I could not express uh, what I thought. It was what the people thought because that was that's what reality really was. Right. What they were expressing. So when I go to the shop floor, I mean, you, you, you – you get to interact with the people. They're the true owners, right? They're, when we're sleeping at night, they're the ones that are running the business. And so I deploy the same process. And, and I bring um, two or three um, plaques and probably 15 coins. Mm-hmm. And, and what I do is I, I recognize people with a coin. And we do a, a selfie. We call them ussies. <laughs> we take ussies. Mm-hmm. And people want the ussies. And we, we have fun. Um, actually through the presentations that we give on the floor. And people now volunteer. I mean, it, 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 they're backlogged with people wanting to give presentations. And recently in one of my plants, I, I went to the plant, and the hourly people came to me. These are, this is a unionized workforce, and says, Mr. Taylor, if possible, will you extend your trip one extra day? We have some other things we'd like to show you, and we'll come in on our day off. Mm-hmm. And what do I, I I extended my trip. Right? Remember, make people visible, they'll make you valuable. Yeah. And so it's it's the same process. When I go to the plant, I mean my my deployment process, I hear for the executive leaders and then I have a process where I go down into the organization for people to show me the process. Mm-hmm. Not the prize, the process, not the records the process. Mm-hmm. Show me the process you use to obtain the record. Is, is there any other sort of, you know, key lesson learned that um, that you would want to share with the listeners? Yes. Um, and I think it's the most important piece of, of uh, the message is failure is part of the process. And, you know, failure... It's never final if you look at it as opportunity, mm-hmm. but it's part of the process. And at that point, how do you re-engage? How do you re-engage? And, and, and versus looking at failure as final. Mm-hmm. But I encourage leaders to embrace the fact that there are going to be bumps in the road, and failure is just a part of the process. And you know, you I, have I to think, embrace that. 
I think there's a difference, yeah, when you have leaders that allow people to give up um, as opposed mm-hmm. to coaching them to move forward. Um, you know, if people say, well, you know, we, we, we tried 5S and nobody was participating. We, we tried lean and it didn't work here. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's sad to see people uh, give up on something when they hit, you know, very predictable bumps in the road, right? Right. Uh, one of my facilities, we were really struggling, and, and I actually spent a week in the plan. And um, the, uh, failure was really destroying the plan. And, I, and I, it's funny you use a 5S model. I actually went to a Home Depot and purchased a hand broom, spray-painted it gold, <laughs> and I brought in a regular hand broom, and I said, okay, on Friday we're going we're gonna to award the golden broom. Uh-huh. And we're going to award the, the, the broom a process. The golden broom was the, the highest ranked area from an audit from the 5S process. If you don't follow the 5S process, you can't be a candidate for the golden broom. The broom award is who made the most improvement. First thing they asked was, how do we get trained on 5S? How do, right? They wanted to learn the process. And, and, and so... It was like wildfire, and we awarded the broom, and we awarded the golden broom. Um, today, if you walk in that plant, you'd think we invested $20 million into it, <laughs> and we've invested minimal. And they still, peers offer the golden broom to each other, and the winner of the golden broom is excluded from bringing something to the potluck. Everybody yeah. else has to bring something to the potluck. Yeah. But again, they bring the potluck in, so it's not costing anyone anything. They bring their favorite recipes in uh, every quarter. And then how it, and what was interesting, painting the front offices, the front office staff was given the opportunity to come in on a Saturday and work half the day cleaning up, and they were awarded a day off, a full day off of their choice. Yeah. <laughs> Extreme ownership. Right. But failure is where we started. 5S doesn't work here. And that's just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. And then we put it in the context of here's how we're going to sustain our workplace. People owned it. But as, as a leader, what did I have to do? The minute they asked me for money to pay a a, a certified painter, if I had said no, we don't have the funds to do that, what would it have done to the process? Right. It would have destroyed it. And so leadership has a responsibility to engage as well. Remember, I was working for them. They weren't working for me. And think about the process uh, itself when people don't want to participate. How do you build, build lean evangelists versus pay profits? Right. Right, a paid profit to tell you anything you want to hear to keep making a profit. <laughs> yeah, right. A, a lean evangelist is going to spread the truth about what's working and if it's real or not. And that's when you build your culture of lean, lean evangelists. Mm-hmm. And when Billy Taylor left Plants, they ran better. When I left, they kept growing because they owned it the whole time. And that's and so that's that, great to hear because um, a lot of leaders move up through the ranks and and don't leave um, a path of a, a trail of sustainability behind them. That's correct. Yeah. That is correct. 
So I imagine you're you're also looking for that as you're evaluating your talent at different levels of leadership of of who's leaving a, a trail of um, sustainment and and continued growth as opposed to a trail of short term flash in the pan success, right? That that is correct. And actually, we actually have a process that you can actually see that and. The, the, the strategy deployment process, we call it 8421. So at the one level, how do you know who owns your eight? So I have eight people. They own $1 of my eight. At the next year, I have four. I mean, I have two. So you have four people that are managing those, that level below that have a clear path to your eight again and so on. And so you know who owns what in the process, but it's visible. Mm-hmm. And so when we have our monthly more meeting, you can walk into our room. We recently had some high school students come into um, our, our facility, and we trained them on this process for two weeks. And at the end of the two weeks, we allowed them to actually run our business. And the teacher in the in the room, literally and physically, she started crying. She couldn't believe she was watching these young kids run a a Fortune 500 uh, business, basically from a standpoint of actions to take. But the process is what what drove that. And the process was getting to the lowest level of the organization. So you can see it in our meeting. And often if, a, if my safety or my quality manager initiative missed, I would say, so what facility caused you to miss? And he would say, plant two. And if the plant two leader is on the phone, so what department caused you to miss that caused us to miss, and then he would tell, and then the department repre- representative would actually tell you to plan to correct it. And this all happens in the span of 15 minutes. The solution, everything, but you're at the lowest level. Hmm. But so we have a process that says, are we aligned? From the senior level to the operator level, are we aligned? And you can actually see it. Right. So, a- yes, it, it, it's critical. And developing people is critical, and right. And most times we get caught up in the source of the idea, right, versus the quality of the solution. And one other thing that kind of stands out from the different stories you've told here, including uh, the Golden Broom story, is the power of symbols. Um, you know, so there's you know a lot of talk about you know data, charts, measures, visual management, dogs barking at red yes. numbers. You know, there's 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 facts and data, you know, you're, you're certified um, in Six Sigma and, and, and there's math and statistics, but it seems like um, there, there, you've found there's a real power in, in not, not, not just recognition, but different symbols that people can relate to and, and sort of rally around. Is that fair to say? Yes, sir. And, and, and those are, those symbols are, are, are right, their mindsets more so than symbols. Mm. People can identify with them. It resonates. And it's when you leave the room, it's still there. I, I, and I'm not a big proponent of accountability, although it's extremely important that you have it. But what's more important is ownership. Mm-hmm. And those symbols, right, it triggers that, that mindset, that mindset of ownership. Like the dogs. You know, if I show you, look, Here's our plant, 
those two dogs, the person watching the sign, yeah, that sounds like us. <laughs> that sounds like us. But you know what? Billy's not like that. We've got to bark at the red so that we can bring attention to it so we can address it. So it's good. We can recognize for barking at the red because we're going to fix it. Not we're going to bark at the red and get beat. <laughs> right. And I think that's right? the key difference. The dogs in that cartoon just bark and bark and it, you know, things stay red because they're not, Absolutely. they're not being servant leaders. They're not helping people improve. Right. So, so think about society. It goes back to exactly what you said. Symbols. So how fast did you drive? When should you stop? When is it appropriate to turn? When is it your time to go at the light? They're all symbols. So where do you go to order food when you walk in a restaurant? What do you look for? The cash register. <laughs> you look for symbols. So how do you know what to order when you walk into a restaurant? What are you looking for? A sign or a symbol. It's the way we live. Mm-hmm. It's society. It's society. And you know what? Governance in our in in in, in America and in Australia. I was recently in Australia, and I. I I was given a very, very uh, critical lesson around visual management and how we have to make it obvious. And the person asked me, so Billy, where should I park? I said, right there at four spots. How do you know? Because <laughs> the, the, the lines are there. Okay. What if the lines weren't there, where, where would I park? Where should people walk, Billy? On the sidewalk. How do you know? Look at the sign. <laughs> Right, so we live in a society of signs and visuals. Yeah, and visuals. Yeah, it's what stimulates us. One, one other question I wanted to ask you: I, I saw you know, a presentation um, that you gave online, and I'll, I'll link to this in the blog post for the episode. And you know, you talked about you know this formula for winning: trust, defining uh, what winning means, creating alignment, executing. Um, really, really great model. And in that model, you know, it, there's there's the words holds people accountable. Um, you said you don't really. I, I was curious what you thought when you said you don't really. I, if I remember right, you don't really like the word accountability. Or what what does accountability mean to you? Um, and and is that the way people always use the word? I I, I, I believe accountability must be. Present and you know, I love accountability. However, accountability is not my focus. Ownership is. Ownership. Just think if this was a uh, uh, let's look at a leader. Um, when a, a leader rules with a hammer and it's just accountability, accountability, accountability. When they walk out of a room, accountability goes with them. Ownership. I get you to own the results. Accountability now is is organic. Mm-hmm. In the majority of the cases, and when I leave the room, accountability stays because you own it. Mm. You own it, and it's it, 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 it's like my son, right, uh, Alex? You missed your curfew, and this this recently happened. And I walk in his room. My, my wife's upset, and I I was hand me the keys. I says, for thirty minutes, you've blown your whole weekend. <laughs> Give me the keys. It's your it's it's your car. You 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 own it. However, you violate the standard. Give me the keys. 
he's upset, and right, and all of a sudden I'm not fair. <laughs> how how did, I'm not fair, Alex? Now two weeks ago, at approximately 11:45, I hear disarm. Now he walks in the house. I'm I'm, I'm reading, and he's have to go say hi to mom. He walks in, kisses his mother. He comes back to dad. I have to tell you the story. And I says, what happened, son? He says, son, we're at, he says, dad, we're at this engagement. We're having fun. We're dancing, uh, and we're we're just having a great time. And you know, this young lady and I are dancing. And I look at my watch, and it's 11. I think 11:15, 11:20, and I know I have a 15-minute drive home. He said, "Dad, she's probably still there dancing by herself." <laughs> you know, because you know what? I was not going to blow my whole weekend and miss my curfew. <laughs> now, what happened? Was accountability there? Absolutely, it was. But what was more? What was more present? Ownership. Ownership. And the discussion we had after that around ownership was almost tear-jerking. His extreme ownership, his level of maturity now is, is, is organically happen, happening, I'm sorry, because of ownership. That's like a workforce. Mm-hmm. Ownership. When you look at safety and you say, well, listen, uh, you can wear your PPE. Well, don't put your PPE on until you get to your workstation and you can only use your cell phone if it's not on your machine and what did you just do you just widen the plate Mm. you widen the plate so why wouldn't you say okay when you walk into the front door your personal protective equipment is is required if you go beyond this line you have violated the the process because we care about your safety and we believe nothing before safety and cell phones are only permitted in this specific area. What did you do? 17 inches. Mm-hmm. Now, ownership now resides with whom? The individual. Right. Accountability now goes back to the, you get greater accountability now through ownership. Right. Yeah. And, and I think situations like that, I, I, I think you articulate that really well. Our accountability requires ownership. You know, I've seen one definition That's of accountability right. that says, I, th- and I, I think I heard you say this earlier, do, do you do what you said you were going to do? And so coming home on time, uh, putting your safety glasses on, um, there, there are things like that we have clear... Uh, ownership of and control over. I think unfortunately, and I and I hear this sadly a lot in healthcare, leaders will use the word accountability like a hammer. Yes. We're going to hold people accountable, which means basically mm-hmm. uh it's a polite way of saying we're going to blame them for things that are out of their control. Um, we're gonna hold nurses accountable for the high infection rates when That's right. you might look at all sorts of problems in the system and understaffing and not having the right equipment available and housekeeping being um, understaffed. And, and, and there's all these different, you know, there's too much waste in the way. It's not just about staffing levels. And, you know, I think yeah. you know, there are some, some situations where it seems unfair. Like you, you can yeah. hold a nurse accountable for showing up on time, mm-hmm. but then there are, a lot, there are a lot of things that seem to be just honestly out of their control. That's right. And, and so what you do is 
put we call it the box. You can't let people operate outside the box. And when you put people in the box, they they organically, they being the people, they cut the box in half. Mm. Ownership cuts the box in half. Your your level your 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 rate of success just improved fifty percent by putting people inside the box. The box of ownership. Yeah. Just look out for that blade as it's coming through and cutting the box. That's that's right. That's right. That's the issue, though. Right? And that's where governance comes in. That's where governance comes in. I mean, governance, is. I believe it's critical. I agree. It's critical. Right? If you walked in a bank right now and said, with a brown paper bag and say, Fill it full of money right now. I guarantee you, you will not not walk out of that bank a free man. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even have to go, have a gun with you. Why? Governance. Yeah. Governance. And, and so I, 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 I am a strong, a firm believer in, in, in governance. There's a book uh, we just recently read called Extreme Ownership. Mm. Um it's a great book to read, but more importantly, and I'm going to end with a uh, with an example. Once I was watching Alabama play, and and I believe Nick Saban is a is a I mean he is a he's a disciple for ownership, and people mistake that as a disciple for accountability or a disciple for coming down on people, and he's not. He's a disciple for ownership and process. They were up. They were playing a team, and I was watching it on TV, on television. They were up. They were winning the game by 28 points. And the, 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 the lineman started to jump offside. And Nick Saban, you could see him getting all over his offensive coordinator, Lane Kiffin. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were up. And they asked him, what were you so, so, so upset about? He said, it's not that play, this game that's going to hurt me. It's a mindset that when I'm in that big game, if that's okay now, it'll happen then when I don't need it to happen. And he says, we have a process. <laughs> he always Ownership. talks about the process. Yes, The process, right? And so, and what's interesting, I think two weeks later, Lane Kiffin's salary went from 700, 740000 to over a million. He was rewarding the process. He was, and he's also showing to Lane Kiffin, when you become a head coach, do you expect what you get or get what you expect? Mm-hmm. Right? He wanted extreme ownership. He wants extreme ownership of the process. For a lineman, here's your job. Own it. And it's a different mindset. He's building mindsets. And I... I would I would venture, and, and I'm not a betting person at all, but I'd be willing to bet you that Nick Saban finishes within the top three this year. Mm. Again, he almost always does. But yeah, that that, uh, that, 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 <laughs> that process with Lane Kiffin went south last year in the week or two before the national championship game. Lane Kiffin mm-hmm. once again has a, a head coaching job uh, down in Florida, so it'll be ah. interesting to see what lessons he learned from Nick Saban in that process if uh, if Kiffin will be more successful than he was at uh, Tennessee and, and USC. USC, I agree. 
I agree. Uh, but, you know, Bill Belichick, they keep winning. They're not flashy about it. They're not in the, Bill Belichick does not praise the individual. It's his process. Yeah. Bill Belichick takes average players and make great teams. And, and, and having, think about that. He, he's got a uh, all-time great in Tom Brady because it's funny. I I, I think of you. Know, my uh, I know you're in Ohio. My dad's family was from the Youngstown area, and my grandmother, when she was still alive, was a, a big Cleveland Browns fan, and she used to complain and complain about Bill Belichick when he was coach of the Browns. And <laughs> um, you know, it's it's uh, yeah. I guess he figured some things out uh, before he well, took the job with the Patriots. <laughs> Well, think about it. Or was it the Browns' leadership? It could be. Senior leadership. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? they haven't been successful without Belichick either. There you go. And Belichick was successful before he went to Cleveland. He's been successful after he left Cleveland. Yeah. And in the, in the, the second piece of that, you reference he has the great uh, he has the great Tom Brady. But when was Tom Brady drafted? Right. If right. he was, if he was so great, right? Evidently, he wasn't so great then that he 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 got drafted in what the sixth round. He he was barely a starter at the University of Michigan. Yeah, right. So, but under Belichick, now he's the great Tom Brady. <laughs> Fair enough. You follow yeah. what I'm following? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it his process and those great receivers that came into his organization, like Randy Moss or a Chad Ochocinco, they did not flourish. And I'm not saying anything bad about either of those guys. By no means, I'm saying no one's bigger than the process. And those people, or those individuals, came from a system that recognized the individual versus a process that embraced the individual. Mm. Well said. So, so I, let, let, I think we'll 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 leave it on. Uh... On that note here, and I think you've given, well, I know you've given me, I'm sure you've given uh, the listeners uh, a lot to chew on, a lot to think about, um, you know, kind of reflecting on their own lean journeys and, and leadership approaches. So, uh, Billy, thank you so much for, for being uh, so giving of your time and, and having, um, uh, you know, sharing so much with us here today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Mark. And uh, it's a pleasure. And uh, thank you for allowing me to use this, the slide as well. Uh, you completed <laughs> my presentation, sir. <laughs> I, I hope it. I hope it's helpful. I uh, hope the audience gets a kick out of it too. And, and thank you for finding that <laughs> and appreciating. All it. right. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.